welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's not heavy, he's my brother. It's Jeff McLodge Huge. I am actually pretty heavy. <laughs> Just going to put that out there. And you're not my brother. And I'm not so. your brother. So, so that song's a lie. Yeah. I'm going to have to look up the release date on it because that would make a perfect candidate for a worst song ever. That uh, song's an atrocity. I like, yeah, I like the story behind that song, though, which is. I like the, the story behind it, sure. But yeah, the song like, is. I like the story behind the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but I don't like the song. <laughs> so. I don't actually like the story behind the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's ter- too sad. Back from the 70s, the beautiful 70s, where you could sing songs about natural disasters and people bought them by the thousands. Oh yeah, we talked about that with the uh, with the in the year twenty five twenty five. It's like that that little era of uh, of music where everything like told a story. It's like I, okay, I got it. There was that song about the like Timmy the miner that ate his miner friends because of a cave in. There's another. There was a couple of songs of that. I have to find that one for you. But yeah, that's out there somewhere. And then there's the record. I mean, of the I, mean I know Big John. That's yeah. a that's a story song, but that's a cool song. Yep. But there's one about a miner that ate his friends. Yeah. Yep. Once when I once in college I went to a modern dance recital that our dance troupe put on and it was a dance interpretation of the Donner Party. Oh my god. It was <laughs> and it was it was one of those like I didn't realize it. I was sitting next to my friend and we're watching it and he sort of leans over and he goes, I think this is about the Donner Party and he was right. Yep. It was very good. But it's one yeah. of those like you don't you know you go fully expecting like Vivaldi's Rites of Spring or something and and you end up with cannibalism. That was about to say the guys from South Park before they did South Park made a movie called Cannibal the Musical, yes, which is on yep. the Donna Party. Yep, yep, yep. I watched an incredibly horrible movie this weekend. You didn't. I did. did. Which which I, one? Um, I actually, I watched two movies this weekend. One was great and the other one wasn't. I have been going back and watching movies that I should have watched by now but haven't. I had never seen The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Ah, so what'd you think of that? It came out in 1977. James Earl Jones is in it. Yep. So think about this. He did Star Wars and Exorcist II, The Heretic, in the same year. Yes. Now, going into it, my expectations were incredible. Seriously, Total shit was the absolute best review I had ever read about that movie. <laughs> yes. I, I want to say about James Earl Jones, though, he, all he did was the voice for Darth Vader in Star Wars. He wasn't actually right. – he just post-production yeah. sound. So yeah. I don't think it was that big of a stretch. Like he was like, I must leave the set <laughs> here in Egypt and rush to Hollywood so that I can put on black leather and wave a sword around. Just do it over the phone. <laughs> I started to think that I wasn't following the movie because I was kind of like half watching and half on my phone. I was like, all right, I really need to pay more attention to this. No, I didn't have to pay more attention to it. That movie is so disjointed. It's yeah. Yeah. And yeah, um, I think the ed- the editor had a had a massive grand mal seizure while they were putting it together because it doesn't make <laughs> it doesn't make a lick of sense. It, it really doesn't. It, even Linda Blair is in that film. It looks like she's confused. It was kind of like they dropped the script on the ground and the binder broke open. It was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, no! And just, just try to put all the pages back together. Just make yeah. me 50 copies of this. You know? <laughs> I'll say the last 10 to 15 minutes of it were pretty good, but, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, there was no saving the rest of the, the other hour and 45 minutes of that. Not not the best way to spend. I can think of other things I'd rather do. So what was the good movie? So let's watched, talk about the good movie. Uh, all right, now, controversy. Ooh, controversy. I watched the reboot Uh-oh. of Child's Play. No, my silence means that I'm, <laughs> I'm disappointed in you, Bill. My silence no, it's, is it's me. I have, a, I have a longstanding dislike of reboots in general. I will say, 
however, the funniest moment I've ever had at the movies, <laughs> where I opened my mouth when I shouldn't have, was with when I was with you and we were seeing My, my Bloody Valentine. Do you remember just going to see My Bloody Valentine? Yes, I do. We went with our friend, uh, my friend Noel, yeah. Yes, and it was I like very that dark. reboot. <clears throat> it was very dark. The main character was in Shaft Number Six, the cursed Shaft, <laughs> and he got arrested after all these people got killed. And he was locked in a cage and said he'd seen the murders. Yep. And then his girlfriend says, "What were you doing in Shaft Number Six anyway?" And I yelled out, "I was mining my own business." <laughs> <laughs> and the whole place cracked up laughing. I guess that was so at that point. That was the rest of the movie was completely unmemorable. But that line was right on. I guess I was mining my own business. So. I watched a Child's Play reboot, and I'll tell you this: I liked it a lot because they 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 didn't just retell the story; they told a completely different story. Right. And also, Aubrey Plaza is in it, and because my love for Aubrey Plaza outweighs my nostalgia for the first movie, anyway, I'm all on board. All right, well, fair enough. I mean, I like the first movie enough that I saw it in the cinema. I don't think I ever watched it, maybe except for once on cable after that. But I remember it was directed by Tom Holland. Yep. Um, so, so what? So what makes it different than what makes the reboot different than the original? Okay, so this Chucky doll isn't a doll with the essence of a serial killer put into it by some crazy voodoo spell. Completely right. different story. Chucky is an AI toy. That learns as it goes. And something goes haywire with the AI. During the movie, the kid and his friends are watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and (laughs) and laughing their asses off at people getting killed and and all that. Because, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is hilarious in the first place. Saw saw that one in the movies and loved it, yes. So did I. Chucky sees them laughing at all this carnage and thinks that that's going to make them happy. And you know how little kids are like, oh my god, I I wish my stepfather was dead. So the the doll is like, well, that'll make him happy. So yeah, the doll starts doing all this like crazy stuff, and it, it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And it had all of the um, all the elements of horror that I like: the tension, the build up of the tension, the little quick releases of it. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I really liked that reboot. All right, fair enough. I probably still won't ever watch it just by have a long standing. The dislike of reboots in general. Uh, I will say that as the Child's Play movies went on. And um, and who does the voice for Chucky? Mark Hamill. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. My, my favorite Joker. Yep. Well, he, uh, it's up on Hulu, so you don't have to go paying for it if you... Oh, good. Yep, it's, yeah, I have Hulu. Yep. There you go. that service. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning August the 10th, and I'm going to start. So All right. You, you go. August the 10th, 1962 is the first appearance of Spider-Man. And it was in a comic book called Amazing Fantasy, and it was issue number 15. Nice. Now, Spider-Man, that was uh, drawn by Steve Ditko, right? I think for that issue. I believe so, yeah. Was his. And, yeah, uh, that's a common misnomer that everybody seems to think that Stan Lee was the artist, and he wasn't. He was just a story writer. So Peter Parker was like the first popular comic book character that had problems outside of being a superhero. Right. So he's sort of angsty around girls, got picked on at school, had all this power, but couldn't really do anything with it. That wouldn't get him into a tremendous amount of like complicated stuff. Went on to sort of redefine how comic book storytelling was done kind of from that moment on. Marvel at the time was super duper influential. Uh, whenever it came down to like, are you a DC guy or are you a Marvel guy? I always liked Marvel better because... I like the fact that the Marvel characters were all flawed, you know, where in in DC there were flaws, but they were like weaknesses. Like 
Oh, for Christ's sake, yes. like, a, like the Green Lantern is powerless against the color yellow, which is dumb. If I was a villain, I would just go up to him with like a slingshot with lemon drops and just kick his ass. Just dress in a yellow sweatsuit. Ha <laughs> I am Banana Man! <laughs> Green Lantern! Oh no! I'm taking over the Green Lantern Corps! Green Lantern's mortal enemy. Chiquita Bananas. <laughs> Taken down by Common Miranda. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Marvel definitely did that. They had a had a better angle on sort of like what older teenage readers were more interested in, I think, in comics than DC at the time, because DC was still pretty much printing the equivalent of kids' right. mags. Even going back and reading DC stuff from the 60s, it still reads like kids' mags. So I don't know if Fantastic Four came out before or after Spider-Man, but that was another one that was influential. What happened was Stan Lee was writing a bunch of – he was writing for comic books, but he just couldn't sell anything and all that. And he was just about – he was older, too. He was almost 40 looking to give up basically and his wife said instead of trying to write stories that they want to read why don't you write what you want to write and that's when he wrote and came up with the characters of the fantastic four ah, makes that's sense. what sold that was the diving board that ended up making stan lee a legend spider-man's always been my favorite superhero mm-hmm. because like well when when it won when i was a kid they used to do reruns of the 1960s Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a Spider-Man yep. uh, cartoon. Yep. I really just was fascinated by the whole swinging from the buildings and stuff like that. I thought that's a great way to get around town. I always liked that in the cartoon they would have shots of, of Spider-Man swinging, but there was no visible oh, yeah. building around him. <laughs> so he was at the docks like, meanwhile, at the docks. What the heck, the heck right. is he connected to? And then here I am in like, you know, the burbs and I'm just trying to figure out like, how would he swing you know, there's no there's no buildings around here that you can swing from. <laughs> Nothing taller than two stories. Like, my, my arms are going to be tired. I had to use all my web just to make two blocks. And then later Sorry. on, like in the 90s is when I started, you know, really reading the comic books because I, I thought Venom was a, a really good character. It was funny that I had latched on to Spider-Man as a favorite superhero as a kid because as a young adult, I had, you know, like almost like a Peter Pan syndrome. I still have it now. You know, I I still want to do all my little kid things and stuff like that. But I also have a great sense of what needs to get done. And that's like this underlying theme in Spider-Man. I mean, everybody knows with great power comes great responsibility. That the underlying theme is being torn between what you want to do and what you have to do. That's that's always been... And that and that's a theme that definitely has spread out into comic yeah. books just writ large Which, uh, after that. I too grew up watching the the Spider-Man cartoon on, you know, reruns as a kid. That weird like one season of NBC Spider-Man. Remember that? Oh, live action do I show? ever because I have my favorite piece of trivia about that. Now, the guy that played Spider-Man in those movies, right? I don't remember the actor's name. In the very famous slash infamous episode of the Brady Bunch, when Masha gets hit in the beak with the with the football, Nicholas something is yeah. his name. He's the big man on campus. Now, cut two. In the nineties, there was a really good. It was on for five seasons. Really good Spider Man cartoon on Fox Kids, and the guy that did the voice yep. for Spider Man was Christopher Daniel Barnes. Was the actor's name Christopher Daniel Barnes okay. played Greg Brady in the Brady Bunch movies that came out in the nineties. So there's a yeah, a Brady Bunch uh, Spider-Man connection. Oh, hey, look at that. Tied yeah. together. I, I could literally talk about Spider-Man all day, but we got to move on to August the 11th. August 11th. What do you got? All right. 1866. Now, this is something super close to my heart because I love this activity more than I ever thought I would at the age that I'm at. But uh, 1866, the first roller rink opens up in uh, New York and in Rhode Island. 
They both opened by the same guy who invented the quad skate. So that skates with two skates in the front, two skates in the back, two wheels in the front, two wheels in the back. What you think of as roller skates, yeah. That you, What you think of today as roller skates. Before then, they were all these different variations, and this is the guy that sort of standardized them. Mm-hmm. Roller skating is something that I started to do as a little kid. I remember my parents taking me to Lincoln Park's roller rink, which was oh, wow. a giant cloud of secondhand smoke at the time. <laughs> I remember Hot Wheels. There was a place called Hot Wheels. In yep. Bedford. I went to. I used to go to Hot Wheels too, and and Carousel Roller Rink in Fairhaven, right. and and skated every pretty much every weekend that I was a little kid. Oh, wow. Up until I was in my early teens, uh, my parents opened a restaurant, so I had to work at that point. But until then, I used to go almost every weekend, and also all my friends in the neighborhood and. Some of my cousins would go, and it was always a tremendous amount of fun. In the last few years, I've been able to introduce my kids to that because of some roller rinks that have opened up right up here, kind of near where I live. So I've I've sort of fallen back into it and really enjoy it as an exercise and an activity, too. It's super fun. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, we had gone up there when I was I had gone up to visit you and we had gone one time. Yeah, yeah it was it was fun. It was I was sore the next day because you're using a bunch of different muscles you're not used to. Right. Yep. Uh, you definitely it definitely gives you a good workout. I started to go because I needed something to do between soccer sessions when I didn't have soccer. Mm-hmm. It sort of filled the bill, and I really liked the music. And I never thought I'd be that excited about dance music and pop music, but it's really fun there. I also learned to appreciate some of the older disco that I had sort of forgotten about because it still gets played at some of these rinks. And uh, it's a it's a ton of fun. It was a yeah, it was a mixed bag. Whenever I went there with you too, like it was there was definitely a lot of kids, but there was a lot of like older crowd kind of peppered in too. Yep, and yeah, I think we went on like a Friday night, and I was and there was a short time where I was going Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon just to go. Jesus. Yeah, well, it, the play one of the places I was going to had a deal where if you bought skates, they gave you the equivalent credit in admissions. Oh. So the set of skates was about 120 bucks. So I had a whole bunch of admissions to go to <laughs> and uh, use them all up. So totally worth it. So super fun. If For those of you out there in Twibley land who are listening, if you have a nearby skating rink, they can probably use your business and it's a lot of fun to go. Just uh, expect to be sore. All right. So let's uh, go on to the 12th, August 12th, 1990. Sue, close personal friend of mine. Sue, the T-Rex dinosaur, was discovered in South Dakota. One of the largest T-Rex skeletons ever found. Largest and most complete, I think, yeah. too, is, is the, other, the other thing. And it's ironic that it's named Sue because it led to a gigantic protracted lawsuit. Poor Sue the T-Rex did. I'm going to guess that's why they named her Sue. Uh, no, they, I think they named it first. And it just was – it's, it's just oh, a right? matter of irony that it, that it became, yeah, Sue the lawsuit T-Rex, <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I'm thinking because of Sue, Sue Falls, South Dakota. Oh, yeah. They the, probably named the it – The Sue well, Indians, it's, yeah. It's spelled like – yeah, but it's not spelled that way. It's uh, Either way. Who knows? That's buried in time. It's buried with the dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. It's buried with the dinosaurs that died out with the, the T-Rexes. Yeah, but it's super interesting if, if you're like a, if you're a paleontology nerd uh, and a legal nerd, or both, that, <laughs> that might be. But uh, it's, it's really interesting to read about. To, and, and what it was, it was like the Black Hills Institute paid $5,000 to this guy so they could they could dig. This, they found, they're looking for bones. They found the T-Rex. They excavated the skeleton and took it away. Then he sued and said, hey, I only gave you access to my land and the the rights to clean the bones and then you were going to bring it back and I'm going to auction them and it got auctioned off for like 8.3 million dollars later and and now 
after a bunch of uh, back and forth because the land that it was found on was owned by the Department of the Interior and not by the Indian nation that the guy who had rented out the land for them to dig on belonged to. Uh, anyway, it's a big, it's a big, big convoluted story. Way too, way more convoluted than it needs to be for this podcast. And you can go and see Sue if you go to the Field Museum in Chicago, where they also have all the amazing murals of uh, dinosaurs that were painted in the 1920s by Charles Knight. Oh, cool. I've all been sort of, if you can watch like the, the evolution of dinosaur art and, and placement of skeletons and organization of skeletons based on those paintings. It's really, really I cool. I was actually supposed to go out to Chicago this summer, but that ended up getting canceled. I'm not glad that it got canceled, but I'm glad I'm finding out about this now. Whenever I go out to Chicago next summer, I'm going to look into going to see that. That sounds cool. Yeah, I had plans to go to the Field Museum, too, and and uh, due to circumstances beyond my control, I wasn't able to go. But it is absolutely on my short list of, short list of places that I will I will be visiting in the next 14 to 24 months, I'm sure. That that really interests me, like seeing the, the skeletons from you know prehistoric stuff like that and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we mentioned it before. One thing that's on my checklist of things I want to see in my lifetime is cave paintings. Yep. So, yeah, that's that's all really super cool and, and interesting to me. I, I, I dig all that stuff. I watch far too many dinosaur-themed things on YouTube. That was, uh, I, I had a, uh, a conversation with a friend of mine who's a creationist. He was like, how can you think that like you and like a cat all came from the same thing. I was like, because everything has the same layout. The eyes are over here, the nose is right below it, and the ass in the back. Even the dinosaurs are laid out like that. <laughs> I mean, me, a dinosaur, a bird, an alligator, and a snake all have the same layout. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play devil's advocate because you know why would I? But imagine if you would. God was like, what if I put both eyes on the same side? Like this fish. That would be yeah. cool. Like this fish, and he looked at the flounder. He's like, "Good God, no! That's not good for anything but being eaten by people." And that, and then he stopped that experiment right there. So he snuck up on on the other side. All right. right. So moving on to August the thirteenth. What do you got? Hey, we're back at roller skating. So in 1935, roller derby's born with the transcontinental roller derby. Uh, beginning in Chicago. So we tie together Chicago and oh. roller skating. Roller derby is like not a sport, but it's a sport. I don't un- know how to describe it. Uh, it has more rules than Quidditch. <laughs> it's just as confusing to try and watch. And it's as typically as attended as USFL games. So no one goes to see it unless you're friends with the people that are playing it, typically. Right, yeah. Um, but there was a resurgence of it over the last 10 or 15 years. Sure. Uh, where a whole bunch of like little teams started and a little league started, and then they all sort of they all sort of farted out because they ran out of money or players or both or places to play, and and now now you can sort of spot the roller derby players at regular roller rinks because they all look the same and they all skate the same. They all have helmets on. They all hunch over. They all have knee pads that are really big knee pads, and their knees are t- close together, and they skate around like with a look of of utter glumness on their face, like they're in stasis waiting for the games to start again. So until then, they're just going to keep going counterclockwise around this rink. My friend Sandra like messaged me one time. She was like, hey, I might try out for roller derby. What do you think? And I was like, oh, I don't I don't know anything about roller derby, but yeah, I say go for it, whatever, and all that. I, and she, I was thinking of trying out for boxing a kangaroo. What do you think? <laughs> you know? No, she ended up loving it. She ended up absolutely loving it, and she really got on with you know with the girls on her team and stuff like that. From all the people that I've ever talked to that played, it's it's supposed to be really fun and really exciting, and and it just never picked up the audience. There was a time in this like late seventies where there was a, was a was a Raquel Welch movie. Was it Rollerball? Is that what you're talking about? Well, no, Rollerball had James Caan. There's a movie about the fabulous T Birds, which was an actual roller derby team that had a TV presence and oh, stuff. Oh, um, see. 
that. That was the thing. Like growing up, like everything just comes like mushed together. When we first got cable, we started watching, you know, wrestling down in Atlanta. And my favorite yep. team was the fabulous Freebirds. And then right. on Saturday mornings after wrestling would come on roller derby on like another station. Yep. And they had the fabulous T-Birds. And I would like everything yep. just gets mushed together. It was ironic too because at that time that roller derby was just as choreographed as wrestling was. Yeah, that's one of the reasons it never really took off as a sport. It was always in that sport entertainment sphere. Yeah. Like high lie. Yeah. <laughs> Which was in Newport. Whoa! Well, look at that. Yeah. See that? It's a giant circle. Yeah. It's a snake eating its tail. <laughs> Run! <laughs> All right. Um, this next one, I picked it just so I could say this sentence out loud. Uh, August 14th, 1994, the Hubble Space Telescope <laughs> takes a picture of Uranus. You whore. <laughs> it takes a picture of Uranus with rings. Yeah, with rings around So I don't right. know what you were doing and why you didn't order the fries. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, we know that popular pronunciations of Uranus is Uranus, but it's not funny if we say that. Right. No, no, there's no – some chicks jokes just don't get old at all. There is a town right. in Connecticut called Myanus. Nice. Uh, no relation to Uranus. <laughs> it's actually pronounced Myanus, but the, the sign, just, it just says Myanus, you know? Right. And well, it's like up, up here we have where. Yeah, but that's not nearly as funny. Uh, no, it's true. Every year when we drove out to Ohio, every year we get to exit five, and I'd be like, Sean, wake up. You're in my anus. <laughs> but getting back to cool. yeah, getting back to the, the planets, uh, that's another thing that like fascinates me. Like right around this time of the year, maybe a little earlier, Jupiter is super, super, super bright in the sky. Yep. So it's amazing. I know that I keep going back uh, and looking at like the pictures that I forget the name of the probe now. Probe that went by Pluto right. and took pictures of Pluto and Ceres and the other, you know, the other little tiny moons that are there. And how amazing those photographs are! Something that's literally the, the furthest thing out in the solar system, and they're able to get pictures that are so crystal clear and detailed and amazing. Right? Yeah, I think like even traveling at the speed of light, it would still take you like four hours to get there. That's yeah. how far out it is. It's nuts. Yep. Crazy. There's only so much we can say about Uranus. So moving on to the 15th, that's a U day. What do you got? I got 1939, The Wizard of Oz premieres at Grauman's Chinese Theater, and it crashes and burns in spectacular fashion. It almost bankrupted the company that put it out. It's this weird film that started in black and white and ends in Technicolor and was horrifically expensive to produce. Didn't reflect really the books that it was based on that everyone seemed to really like. Got a second life in the 50s when it became a staple on American television, especially when color television started. So I've always known The Wizard of Oz from seeing it on TV. TV, um, like on the Friday night movie because oh, sure. yeah. they would show it once or twice every year. Yeah, we, can't, we come on in like May, if I remember correctly. Is it? Yep. yep. I figured it would be on like tornado season, but I suppose that's too on the nose. <laughs> right? I just watched a documentary on YouTube about the dark side of making The Wizard of Oz and like the, the working conditions were unbelievably horrible over yeah. there. Like the lion yep. suit was made out of real lion hide yeah. and it weighed like 90 pounds. Yep. And it was over 100 degrees every day on that set. Poor Burt Lahr. Yep. He probably lost like 725 pounds mm -hmm. making that movie. That's the sort of start of Judy Garland's issues with substances because she was given stuff to keep her weight down and like all this crazy, all this crazy stuff. It's like, it, it's it's a microcosm of how bad the studio system had become yep. by 1939. And, and they had to bind her chest down too because the, the character in the book is 12 years old. Yeah. And she was like, I think 16 or 17 at the time. 
So yeah, they had to bind her chest down so she would look younger. They kept her on speed during the day, and then they gave her stuff to sleep at night. She was like, sleeping at night. Yeah, yeah, she was like on the Elvis Presley diet. Yeah, she was definitely the Elvis Presley routine. So, so yeah, it's sad. The film still holds up though. It's still fun to watch. It's something you can still sit down and watch with kids. And there's enough in it that that's going on that it's 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 paced in a way that makes it still enjoyable even at. Jeez, I'm not going to do the math, but... Uh, almost yeah, 81 years, it looks like. People make fun of my accent all the time. If you haven't picked up on this yet, Scarecrow and the Tin Man are both from Boston. Both of those actors were oh. from Boston. So Ray Bolger and Jack Haley. So if you watch the movie with that in mind, listen to them talk. I will definitely do that next time I watch it. The Tin Man says, And he put me together without a ha. And then the Scarecrow goes... No, ha! <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll definitely have to listen yeah, for they that. they have really, yes. really bad Boston accents. So, All right, so moving on to the 16th. August 16th. Hey, ho, let's go. August 16th, 1974, the Ramones, R-A-M-O-N-E-S, Ramones, play their first yep. gig in New York City. Nice. Whenever I get, you know, hassled by, because, you know, I work at the theme park there with the haunted houses and I work at a Renaissance fair. Yes. You know, and I've been doing that forever. So this, you know, the turnaround, it's a lot of young kids a lot of the times and all that. Right, right. You know, if they ever give me shit for me being, you know, so much older than everybody else, I'm going to be like, yeah, enjoy your 21 pilots, all right? Because I've seen the fucking Ramones three times. That's my go-to. And what's funny yeah, is, good. you know, millennials and zillennials, I know a ton of them that love the Ramones. They they still have a following. Well, well yeah. How can you not like them? I mean, it's like, it's, it's fast three-chord fun rock that doesn't have any real deep subtext unless you get into later catalog stuff like uh, Bonds or Goes to Bitburg or whatever. So most of it is, is sort of fun, fun. Yep. Fun or funny, and, and there's like weird wordplay, like beat on the brat, the KKK took my baby away. Like, Oh, do you know the story behind that song? No. Uh, Johnny Ramone was like a super conservative, like he used, he like campaigned for Nixon and stuff like that. And Joey Ramone was a huge liberal, like he used to go to protest and stuff like that. Right. And they didn't like one another. They hated each other. Yeah. Joey Ramone had this girlfriend. She started kind of getting Google eyes for Johnny, ended up marrying Johnny. Mm-hmm. So the song, The KKK Took My Baby Away, <laughs> was Joey like giving the middle finger to Johnny for stealing his girlfriend. Testament to Johnny's like ability to stay with the band and roll his eyes and keep on playing every time he had to play that song, I guess. Well, is- yeah, that's. And that's another thing, too, like my years and being in a band, I always just kind of like, you know, growing up, just assumed that these guys were all friends with each other. I thought they were brothers but, until I was 30. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you get older and you start watching like documentaries or you start reading autobiographies right. and stuff like that. Like two of my favorite bands at that time were I loved Kiss. And right. later on, I love the Ramones. And then you read all the books about them and you find out that they all basically hate Hated one another. Hated one another, yeah. Yep. I, I was just reading an article, I don't know, a couple months back, somewhere somewhere between then and now, I don't know, everything's a big blur lately, yep. about uh, when Pink Floyd put out the final cut and how that that was the, the disillusion kind of of Pink Floyd as a band. And it was really, really interesting to go back and look at it some, and see how all the creative work that went into it just broke out, distanced all the people from one another to the point where they nobody could work together anymore. Yeah, they really, didn't really even weird. work together. Like, they weren't even in the same room recording for that, for yeah, that the, album. Yeah, the quote yeah. that stands out was at one point, David Gilmore said, well, I guess if you need a guitar player, you can call me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Ugh. I got the opportunity to meet Marky Ramone a number of times 
Yeah. <laughs> I was so excited to meet him, right? And I was telling him, I was like, you know, I grew up, you know, I was a big Kiss fan. That was the only band I knew. That was the only band that I loved. And then I, I, I got this record for Christmas called Rock 80, which was like a KTEL album, yep. which, you know, had a bunch of different songs. And the, and I, I was tried to tell him that the Ramones was on there. Yep. And, it, you know, that just changed my taste in music. I couldn't even get that far. Right. As soon as I said Rock 80, he goes, oh, I had that record. It was, <laughs> it was in a... It was in a case of records. I, I had a house, right? And I had all these records downstairs. And I sold the house, but I still had some of my stuff over there. And then there was a flood, and the records all got... And he kept on going on and on and on. And I'm like, right. dude, I just want to tell you how you changed my life. Could you, just let, <laughs> could you please just let me have my moment? You're killing me. So, yeah, the Ramones. Love them. Still, yep, love still love them. Still do. My my son, the first favorite song he ever had when he was really little was Blitzkrieg Bop because it was used in this goofy-ass video bumper mm -hmm. for some channel going back into the internet wayback machine now. There was this guy who had done these like little cartoon paper cutout animals. Uh -huh. I can't remember the name of the guy, but he did a video for a song called... We like the moon. We like the moon. It's a really silly song. And he had done this oh, bumper. Oh, no. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Right? He had done yeah. a bumper for either Cartoon Network, which my kid watched incessantly, or Nickelodeon or something. And it was Blitzkrieg Bop, but it was little cardboard, like paper cutout kitties mm -hmm. who were playing it, just to the backing track from the Ramones. And my son would go, kitty song. So yeah. when we would play the Ramones in the car kitty song and he'd like yell for it so it became his first like real favorite tune and uh i'm gonna stick a link in the description listeners let me tell you you have neither lived nor laughed until you have heard dd ramon's rap album <laughs> yes 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 and there will be uh he there was will a be german a, kid yeah that's what i was gonna use yeah that song the backing vocals are done by debbie harry debbie from harry. blondie yep. All right, so let's get into the celebrity birthdays. All right. Uh, I'm going to start because I totally want to tell this story. Okay. Uh, August the 10th is the birthday of Fred Ottoman in 1956. Now, who is Fred Ottoman? Fred Ottoman. Yeah. Fred Ottoman is a professional wrestler who at one time went by the name of Tugboat or Tugboat oh, Thomas. Holy. <laughs> I remember Tugboat. That's part yes. of the natural disasters. Yeah. Yep, yep. Now, at one point, he had jumped ship, and he was overworking for the WCW. He was supposed to be like dark secret, like a, a special villain or whatever. So, so they have on one, and this is on a pay per view, right? So it's live television. So the camera, you know what's happening, right? Yeah, I do. So the camera is going, and there's Sting, the British Bulldog, and Sid Vicious, right? And all of a sudden, what was supposed to happen was there was this flash, this bang, and then the shock master would come crashing through the wall. But what actually happened was the people that built the false wall had put a two-by-four, like a cross beam. You know, Fred comes crashing through the wall, trips over the cross beam, and completely eats shit. The helmet goes flying off. And the helmet was stupid to begin with. The helmet was this, like... Star Wars Stormtrooper helmet spray right. painted with glitter. Silver. So the, silver glitter. Yeah. So yeah. the helmet flies off and everybody watching goes, oh, wow, look, tugboat. And then <laughs> he like scrambles, grabs the helmet, put, puts it on. And then it, it was kind of like Star Wars in itself where he wasn't actually talking. It was like the voice was being done by somebody else off camera. Yeah. 
yeah. with like a voice pitch cha- changer. And he's over there <laughs> talking about all the nasty, mean things he's going to do to Sting and his cohorts. <laughs> and you just see like, I think it was a British Bulldog just like turned to put his back to the camera because he could not hold it together. And God love the other two because they cut the rest of their promo. Like I said, on live TV, this guy just like face planted. Never lived it down. We, it's, it is, we definitely have to put a link to this. Oh, yeah. In the, link in, in description. The, yeah. It's the whole thing. It, it's like two and a half minutes long, but the whole thing is on YouTube. Yeah. So happy birthday, right, Fred. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to stop laughing at that now. Okay. All right. So August 11th, uh, 1983, Chris Hemsworth, an Australian actor who is known most for playing a Norwegian god named Thor mm-hmm. uh, in the Avengers films, uh, is born in Melbourne, Victoria. So... Uh, he was oh, yeah. very, very funny in, and I know you don't like reboots, the reboot of Vacation. I, I think he's got a good sense of humor, and he's a good actor. Like, he's funny as Thor. I liked him in Thor Ragnarok, yeah. and and I liked him in the other stuff that I've seen him in. See I even Cabin liked the, the first Thor movie. I have not seen Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods is magnificent, and uh, and he's great in that. Ah, I will definitely. That's, that's one that's, like, perpetually on Netflix, so I'll have to check that one out. Uh, moving on to the 12th. 1887, it may or may not be Schrodinger's birthday. Oh, I bet that was weird when the pregnancy doctor met with his mother and she said, do you know if it's a boy or a girl? He's like, I'm not even sure there's a baby in there. <laughs> Interesting fact about Erwin Schrodinger, he never opened any of his birthday gifts. <laughs> so. <laughs> Moving move, move right along. August 13th, <laughs> move right along. 1899, uh, with no suspense at all, Alfred Hitchcock, the director of Psycho, Birds, and Rear Window. Yep. Uh, among other films, and a long-running TV show. Odd Man, one of my favorite little pieces of trivia about him is he never used the same teacup. Really? On the on the movie set, he would have a teacup, he would drink his tea, and then when he was done, he would throw it over his shoulder. Huh. Must have sucked for anybody, like, for the poor grip who's, like, walking behind him <laughs> with it, looking at a clipboard. All of a sudden, he gets a tea, teacup bounced off his head. So moving on, on to August the 14th, 1945, Steve Martin. Wow. Yep. What a jerk. <laughs> St. Louis? No! <laughs> Name it Johnson. <laughs> he hates these cans. Stay away from the cans! Super great. One of the best uh, sort of weird comedians came out of that weird era. Like, uh, It's like almost Dadaist comedians where he did like the comedy for dogs back in the late 70s right. and had the whole wild and crazy guy shtick that made him super popular in early early 1980s or late 1970s too and then sort of became like a f- staple film comedy star like I, I don't i still remember how funny like remember the movie all of me yes with him and lily tomlin where they shared his body so he was like still doing that physical comedy that people don't do anymore mm-hmm. and was able to make it really funny he was in uh the man with two brains i love that one and all kinds of other like just great great stuff and then like the last the last years where he was really making a lot of films he started doing like the weird reboots right like the pink panther films and yeah i never saw those and and some other stuff yeah man, me neither yeah um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a great guy. Yeah. Fantastic five-string banjo player, too. Yeah. All right, moving on to the 15th. Ah, Julia Child, 1912. Julia Child is a super-duper interesting person, not only because she brought French cooking back to the United States after the Second World War, kind of, but she was a spy during World War II. <laughs> she invented shock repellent. She's, like, super-duper smart, was able to develop a TV persona that made cooking complicated French recipes easy. And set the stage for, like, all other cooking shows that have ever come after her. So if you watch Rachel Ray or Giada De Laurentiis or whatever, what you're seeing is the offspring of her work. None of them are spies, though. No, none <laughs> of them created shark repellent either. That we know about, yeah. 
Yes. The only thing I really remember about her was Dan Aykroyd's spot-on impersonation <laughs> of her. Oh, yes. I'm bleeding like the Dickens. <laughs> oh, just put some chicken giblets in there. Yes, uh... <laughs> And wrapping up the celebrity birthdays, August 16th, 1958, an enigma, a mystery amongst uh, the music thing, because I do not understand this woman or her appeal. But God love her, Madonna's birthday, August 16th, 1958. She did not invent shark repellent. No, Madonna did not invent shark repellent or voguing for that matter. I will say that in recent years, and you know, as I have old kids that are growing into young adults now like so that our music tastes here are super varied they're always interested in stuff that either i can talk about like kind of like we do on this show we had a little run of conversation about madonna because they had heard like a virgin and and like a prayer so two Leica songs, two songs I like. Um, <laughs> and we sort of talked about like wh- why she was sort of important in the 80s. And I went back and I listened to a bunch of her first and second records. You know what? They hold up. Pop music is completely different now than it was then. Sure. But those records are immaculately produced and really listenable still. They tried marketing her because uh, because MTV was still in its infant stages. Every band that was really popular on MTV was British. Yes. So when they whenever she first came out, even though she's from New York, they right. marketed her as a British act because she was living in England at the time. But they, market, yeah. they marketed her as a British act. I remember the first interview. It was either with her on MTV or her with Dick Clark. But I just they they said, well, you know, what's your plan? You know, what's your plan as a as a musician or or music act or whatever? And she looked right in the camera and said, to take over the world. Mission accomplished, honey. Yeah, she did it. Yeah. Right. I still don't uh, get it. I still <laughs> I still don't get the appeal but, with her. But whatever. All right, so that brings us to the worst song ever. What do we have for the worst song ever? What's our song this week? Going all the way back to 1986, where if you happen to be at an eighth grade dance and it was almost 9.15, you were about to hear the last song of the night. It was this number one song. So the number one song of this week is Peter Cetera's Glory of Love, Ripped Lock, Stock, and Barrel. (laughs) <laughs> from the end credits, Karate Kid Part 2, a film that is nowhere near as good as it should be. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a song that... It's schlock. It's schlock is what it is. Hold on. It's nutless, it's nutless white boy twerp rock. It's terrible. <laughs> it's just awful. Wait, hold on. Wait, let's play a clip. really understand this whole business here because like chicago now peter cetera up until this this was his first single as a solo artist yes prior to him being a solo artist he was in the band chicago at one point they were pretty bad ass you know yeah that stopped in 1972 or 73 so you got to go back like over a decade before when they started to become chicago that that played music for old people in elevators right. Peter Cetera had a but like because he wasn't always the lead singer. They kind of traded off, I think. Chicago was kind of like Journey, but Journey doesn't have a badass era. They just <laughs> they just kind of like, oh wait, if we write this kind of like schlocky stuff, we can sell records. Well, let's just do that then. Peter Cetera actually that song, "The Glory of Love," he had submitted it to be on the soundtrack for Rocky Four, and they were like, no. <laughs> We're just going to forego that. We're going to go with another Survivor song. Which had way more testosterone in it than anything that Peter Cetera 
put out on his own. What do you keep calling him, Peter Ceterrible? <laughs> yes. I kept, I always called him Peter Etc. Yeah, there you go. So that's a good one, too. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, anything after, like, I don't remember what year the it was like the guitar player Terry Kath he died in Chicago and with him went all of the testosterone in the band so I guess they buried it all with him must have been a messy funeral <laughs> but um yeah he he had this like weird career resurgence in the late 80s where I don't know who his audience was it must be like 65 year old recently widowed or and or divorced ladies who hang hang around tennis clubs and drink vodka and cranberry remember last week I was saying you know who likes Survivor your sister does you know who likes yes. Peter etc your mom <laughs> he's such he's a nice, nice boy he's got a nice haircut look he's at him nice. yeah it's non-threatening yeah. and like the follow-up single the next time i fall next time I oh fall. it's like oh my god leave my poor mother alone that that's that song is it just saps yep. the will out of you it's a, just imagine like the engineers like with the their earphones on and he's like singing that song it's just like they're like melt into your skull like that scene from trick-or-treat <laughs> Peter Starr's voice sounded to me like Rod Stewart if he was Alvin from Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> that's what that's what Peter Cetera sounds like. He sounds like David Seville doing Rod Stewart doing Alvin as Alvin and the it's Chipmunks. It's like Rod Stewart finally cleared his throat. Right. It's just it's just it's terrible. It's like a horrible gravelly falsetto that not not my favorite guy. Not my favorite singer. Yeah. I uh, I don't, I don't understand. How long was this was this dog on the charts? Bill? A couple of weeks, actually. Oh, now I'm, I'm earwormed with the next time yeah. I fall in love. Oh, now, see, now it was it was, it went to number one on the U.S. pop charts, right? Yeah. But it also went to number one in probably with the worst songs imaginable. Where I'm probably going to pull all the, all of our future episodes from. Okay. <laughs> the U.S. Adult Contemporary Chart. Yeah, yes. And I'm pretty sure that's just a chart uh, that shows the contents of a big vault buried out underneath a mountain someplace where they put all these atrocious records and they just bought them off the shelf so that people wouldn't accidentally buy them and bring them home and listen to them. And they just buried them out in the in the Yucca Salt Flats or something. (laughs) That whole I don't even know if that chart exists anymore. For for, for taste purposes, I hope it doesn't. Yeah. Well, that's going to wrap up the show. We will see you guys next week. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Later, guys. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.